Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. Today, we are going to discover what serial position effect is and then learn about what place cells in the brain do. But before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories. And to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive in to episode 31, From the Serial Position Effect to Place Cells. Social Sciences Serial position effect is something many of us are familiar with, but may not have known that there was a name for it. If you ever looked at a list and then tried to recall it, have you noticed that it is a whole lot easier to remember what was at the beginning and end of the list compared to what was in the middle? I know that has happened to me, but didn't realize there was a name for it, and that name is the serial position effect. Hermann Ebenhaus, a German psychologist who lived in the mid-19th century, coined the term serial position effect. He is best known for his research into memory and pioneered experimental studies of memory using himself as the subject, though that was a big limitation to his research. He also is known for pioneering sentence completion exercises, drafting the first standard research report, and discovering an optical illusion, which is now named after him, the Ebenhaus Illusion. For those who are wondering, this is the optical illusion where you have two circles of the same size. One circle is circled by circles that are larger than it, and the other circled by circles that are smaller. The circle surrounded by the larger circles appears smaller than the circle surrounded by smaller circles, though they are both the same size. Anyway, back to serial position effect. This effect describes how people, when presented with information, are more likely to remember that information at the beginning and the end than what was presented in the middle. In a study by Murdoch from the early 1960s, participants were asked to learn a list of words which varied from 10 words to 40. They were then asked to free recall them. The study showed that the likelihood of recalling words presented in the list was dependent on where the words were located in the list. Those words, which were in the beginning and end of the list, were more likely to be remembered, and those in the middle were more likely to be forgotten. Murdoch drew a conclusion that the words presented earlier in the list were put into long-term memory, and those at the end of the list were stored in short-term memory, which is why they could be recalled. But the words in the middle of the list were too far away to be stored in short-term memory, but not long enough to have been stored in long-term memory, which is why they were difficult to recall. This is referred to as asymptote. So based on this study, we know the serial position effect actually consists of two parts, the primacy effect and recency effect. The primacy effect is a penchant to remember what comes first. It is believed that the primacy effect is linked to long-term memory and that because the words are presented early in the list, less processing effort is required in rehearsing the items and thus leads to better recall. 
This is different than those presented in the middle of the list because these have to be rehearsed with the preceding information and thus increases the cognitive burden which affects recall. Having a list presented quickly will actually weaken the primacy effect because it gives the person less time to store those items in long-term memory. The second part of the serial position effect is the recency effect. This effect describes how people tend to remember items at the end of a list. This is because items are stored in part of the short-term memory which holds temporary information. There are ways to stop the recency effect though. In a study by Glanzer and Kunitz in the mid-1990s, they gave two groups of participants the same group of words. One group was asked to recall the words immediately after the presentation, while the second group had to wait 30 seconds. Those who had to wait were also asked to count backwards by threes. What the researchers found was that words at the end of the list are only remembered if they are recalled first, but by delaying by 30 seconds, the recency effect is prevented. Therefore, recency effect is affected by both passage of time between the end of the presentation and when a participant is asked to recall the information, as well as if additional information is presented between the end of the presentation and recall. Many businesses actually make use of the serial position effect. Information that they want customers to notice and remember, they will list in the beginning and at the end. For example, on a sales page, the main benefit tends to be put first on the list, and then persuasive extras such as free shipping are put last. Also, if users on a web page need to make a decision immediately, the most important item should be listed last. But if a user has time to make a decision after exposure, then listing the most important item first is important. So when you're searching through stores websites, see if you notice any serial positioning effect being used. Sports and Entertainment Arm wrestling, something that many of us have challenged a friend to back in our school days, is also a professional sport. Many believe that it was practiced as far back as ancient Egypt with proof from paintings that date back to 1000 BC. Others believe that these paintings may actually represent a form of dance. There is also evidence from Japan with the first reference from the year 712 where gods Takimikachuch and Takiminakata participated in a match to determine possession of Japanese islands. The match was recognized as a fight of the hands. It is possible that arm wrestling came to Japan from India and China through Okinawa. Professional arm wrestling actually started in a saloon called Gilardi's in Petaluma, California in 1952. The first organized competition took place in this saloon and was organized by journalist Bill Soberanes. The arm wrestling competition was held each year and each year it became bigger and bigger. Finally, in 1962, it became so large it was moved to an auditorium in Petaluma and was renamed the World Wrist Wrestling Championship. Professional arm wrestling also received a boost from, believe it or not, the Peanuts comic strip by Charles Scholes. In 1968, Scholes did a series of comic strips that focused on Snoopy heading to Petaluma to try to win the World Wrist Wrestling Championship. In the last strip, Snoopy is disqualified though, because the rules state that you have to lock thumbs with your opponent, and Snoopy does not have thumbs. 
The year after the comment strip came out, the World Wrist Wrestling Championship signed a deal with ABC's Wide World of Sports in 1969, which lasted for 16 years. The World Arm Sport Federation was then established in 1992, with the USA, Canada, Brazil, and India the first members. Now, for those who want to know tips to winning an arm wrestling match, an article was published on Mental Floss's website in September of 2018 by Jake Rossin entitled Seven Tips for Winning an Arm Wrestling Match. Tips included not leaning over the table and not sitting down. The stance should include planting the foot of the dominant hand under the table with the hip touching the edge of the table. And then using your free hand to either grip the edge of the table or push down on the table for stability. You want to remember to breathe and you want to wait for your opponent to relax. And you want to beat the hand, not the arm, using one of three basic techniques the shoulder press, the hook, and the top roll. The top roll technique gives you the best chance of winning as it is based on strategy and not strength and may allow you to defeat stronger opponents. It involves sliding your hand up your opponent's so your grip is attacking the top portion nearest the fingers per the article. You do want to be careful though, as going up against a stronger opponent without practice can cause significant injuries. And the most common arm wrestling injury is the fracture of the humerus, which is the upper arm bone. So now you know some tips and tricks for arm wrestling. Science and Technology. Have you ever wondered how you know where you are in space and how you are able to navigate through an environment? It's time for a crash course on the type of brain cells that do this place cells. Place cells are a pyramidal neuron located within the hippocampus, which is a region of the brain that deals with response inhibition, certain types of memory, and spatial cognition. The cells were first discovered by John O'Keefe and Dostrovsky in 1971. When they found that there were brain cells located in the hippocampus that were responsive to spatial surroundings. John O'Keefe won the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for the discovery of these cells, called place cells. While there is still a lot to learn about how place cells function, the thought is that they help humans and animals navigate their environment and know their position within the environment. To be able to do this, place cells are very responsive to their spatial surroundings and will fire with increased speed under certain conditions, to include when they are in a place they have already been, when a new item is added to the environment, or when an item that is usually present is no longer present in the environment. John O'Keefe published the first substantial data on place cells in 1976 when he presented evidence that place cells in rats would fire whenever they were in a certain location in their local environment. He also noted that each place cell had a different place field, a specific region where a cell fires. Based on his experiments, John O'Keefe also published a book called The Hippocampus as a Cognitive Map. Which has been the basis for almost all subsequent study of spatial cognition in the hippocampus. Place cells receive two types of sensory information to help them with their job metric and contextual. Metric sensory information corresponds to where place cells should fire and includes both linear and directional input. Contextual sensory information is used to help place cells determine whether or not to fire in a certain environment, 
and allows place fields to adapt to small environmental changes, such as the shape and color of an object. Sensory input is typically either visual, spatial, or olfactory input, and place cells typically rely on visual spatial input. The visual spatial input can be orienting landmarks, movement, or geometric boundaries. When there's a loss of visual information, place cells can use olfactory information to help compensate. Olfactory information is based on odors or smells, and a study by Zhang et al. showed that place fields remained stable when odors alone were used without visual or auditory information, and they would even remap entirely if the odors were moved randomly. Along with their ability to help us navigate our environment, place cells are also important in memory and help to establish the spatial context to complete memory patterns. Place cells are important to both pattern completion, which is the ability to recall an entire memory from a partial sensory cue, and pattern separation, which is the ability to separate a memory from all other stored memories. Place cells' importance to memory can also be seen by studying the effects of alcohol. When place cells are exposed to alcohol, their firing rate decreases dramatically and leads to decreased spatial sensitivity. Chronic exposure leads to deficits in both spatial learning and memory tasks as well. Lesions of the vestibular system, which is part of the inner ear, can also lead to abnormal firing of the hippocampal place cell. This dysfunction can cause spatial memory deficits 5 to 10 years after complete vestibular loss. Now that we've had our crash course in place cells, it's important to know that place cells are just one of the many cells that interact to complete a network of spatial mapping. The other cells include grid cells, head direction cells, and border cells, all of which coexist with place cells to develop a global representation of a person or animal's changing location. For those who are interested in learning more about this topic, there are many free articles available on Google Scholar, and I will link a couple on my website to get you started. Geography and World Culture Today we travel to Venice, Italy, where we are going to learn about the Squale Grande di San Rocco. It was founded in 1478 and is the only one of the historic scuole grandes that survived the fall of the Republic. It was a confraternity with members coming from the middle classes working in trades or professions. There are various types of scuole in Venice including those of arts and crafts, national scuole which group members of each foreign community in a town, and devotional scuole which has specific religious connotations. Each squale had its own statute called a Mari Gola, which described its aims and roles. They were ruled by the Banca and the Zonta. The Banca was the board which consisted of the Guardian Grande, or head of the squale, and his counselors. The Zonta, an additional board, was added to the Banca and monitored the activity of the main board. One of the things that the Scuola Grande di San Rocco is most known for is its paintings by Tintoretto, a famous artist. The first building that Tintoretto completed was the Sala del Albergo. In 1564, the Scuola Supervisory Board chose to have its ceiling painted. They held a competition in May among the best Venetian painters, including Silviati, Zuccari, Veronese, and Tintoretto. 
Now Tintoretto surprised everyone because instead of submitting artwork, he was able to install his painting entitled Saint Roque in Glory on the ceiling. Initially, the supervisory board was unhappy, but when Tintoretto offered his painting as a gift, the Scuola accepted it, and after this, an art contract was established between the Scuola and Tintoretto. In the remainder of 1564, Tintoretto finished painting the ceiling free of charge. He would end up joining the Scuola during this time and would get a commission for his wall paintings. Paintings of the Sala del Albergo represent scenes from the Passion of Christ, which differed from other Venetian squale of the time, which typically had artwork showing miracles and scenes from the life of its patron saint. The chapter room, also called the Sala Capitolare, was the next to be painted, voted on by the squale in 1574. Again, Tintoretto offered his talents and he ended up not only completing the ceiling but also the walls. In total, 33 paintings were completed in the chapter room, which were finished in the summer of 1581. His last works for the Squale were in the ground floor hall and were completed between 1582 and 1587. They included eight large canvases on the wall, and these paintings had considerable help from his assistants, particularly his son, Domenico. The mission of the Squale today is to conserve its monuments and in particular, its artwork. They also help out with charitable works. The Squale's current statue dates back to 1913 and states that it can be comprised of an unlimited number of members. Today there are approximately 400 men and women with new members joining, usually in July. To be a member, one must meet certain requirements to include being born or domiciled in the Commune of Venice. The Squale is named after San Rocco. San Rocco was born in 1295 to a powerful noble family. He renounced wealth and instead chose to serve the needy and dedicated himself to the sick. It is said when he traveled to Rome, he was received by Pope Urban V and cured a cardinal of the plague. On his way back to Montpellier, he himself became sick with the plague but recovered, resuming his journey again. On arrival to Montpellier, he was imprisoned as a spy because nobody recognized him after his recovery from the plague. Instead of revealing who he was, he remained in prison for the remainder of his life. The Scuola Grande consists of three main buildings, the Scoletta, which is now used for temporary exhibitions, the church, which houses the body of St. Roque preserved in its high altar, and the Scuola Grande, which is a large building that houses the headquarters of the Squale and was built in the 16th century. For those who would like to learn about both the buildings and its artwork, you can visit the official website at squelagrandesanroco.org. The Squela Grande di San Rocco is also open to visitors between 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. and costs 10 euros to visit. The entry fees are used to restore and maintain the paintings and other artistic affairs within the Scuola and its church. Today's random topic. Today's random Wikipedia page brings us to an animal known as Graptolites. Graptolites are the third class of hemichordates and the most important hemichordate fossil. Graptolites' name is derived from Greek, with grap meaning inscribed or written and light meaning stone. The name was given to these fossils because they reminded people of hieroglyphs. 
The Graptolites lived from the Cambrian period 510 million years ago to the Carboniferous period around 320 million years ago. Graptolite colonies start from a single individual called a secular zooid. Additional zooids come from the original and each are housed within organic tubular structures made from material like chitin. A mature zooid has three important regions, a preoral disc or cephalic shield, a collar which included a U-shaped digestive system and a single pair of arms, and a trunk. There are two types of graptolites, one which lived at the bottom of the ocean where they stuck to the surface, and one that floated in the seawater drifting with the currents. Both types fed by straining plankton and other food sources from the water. Graptolites are important because they help scientists figure out when rock was laid down. Andrew McMillan, a former field geologist with the British Geological Survey, is quoted on the Scottish Geology website as saying, The excitement of finding a graptolite is palpable. Even seasoned paleontologists have been known to become ecstatic on making a new discovery. So engrossed in their fieldwork, I have known them to lose track of time and get lost while returning home in the dark. Why should this be so? Well, graptolites are not only locally abundant in certain rock types, but they provide the key to unraveling the stratigraphy or order in which the rocks were laid down. Because many species were short-lived, lasting only a million years or so, they can be used as zone fossils. And there you have it. Now you know a little bit more about graptolites. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website, www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. I'm currently running a little bit behind on the updates, but they will be up to date by the end of this month. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about literature in 1776 and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Lee Brackett in her book, The Long Tomorrow. You can't destroy knowledge. You can stamp it under and burn it up and forbid it to be, but somewhere it will survive. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.